A four-year-old boy was asked to say grace before Thanksgiving dinner. The family members waited with eager anticipation to see what he would say. He began by thanking each and every one of his friends by name. And then after that list, proceeded to thank God for every family member, mommy, daddy, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings. The list went on. And then he turned to the food at hand and with great specificity thanked God for turkey and dressing, for bread, for salad, for cranberry sauce, for cakes and pies, and even mentioned the Cool Whip. And then silence, a long pause. Finally, the little boy looks up at his mother and asks, if I thank God for the broccoli, will he know that I'm lying? <laughs> it's hard to be thankful when life dishes up broccoli. It's difficult to have a spirit of gratitude when life gives us that which is bitter, circumstances that are hard to swallow. Through grief and tragedy and loneliness and unmet expectations, it is difficult to be thankful when what's on the table of life is not what we would wish it to be. But we know somehow that a spirit of gratitude is essential for well-being, for the abundant life that Jesus envisions. And so we do not leave it alone. Rather, we turn to the scroll of 1 Kings to consider the story of the widow of Zarephath, where I believe we find two lessons on how it is that we might be filled with gratitude even amid a world of things like broccoli. Let us look together, beginning in chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And remember that place name. He began to serve Baal and worship him. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Political disaster. Filled up with idolatry and violence, Ahab sets the bar. Whatever you think of the governments of this age, whatever you think of governments to come, maybe next year, none as bad as this one, Ahab. The political situation, broccoli. We continue chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite 
from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. Add to political turmoil, ecological disaster, environmental problems, and a humanitarian crisis. The world doesn't taste so good, does it? Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Elijah cared for by birds under the direction of God. Perhaps Jesus draws a bit of this imagery when he tells us not to worry about our lives. Look to the birds, and all will be well. Chapter 17, now in verse 7, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, there it is, and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Two pieces of this invitation, unexpected. First, the woman is Sidonian. Does it ring a bell? She is from the land of Jezebel. God sends his prophet to the place that just sent the personification of evil into the land of God's holy people. Perhaps a footnote, we should not think that God is not alive and well in the lives of those who might be beyond the circles that we typically draw. In fact, Jesus in Luke 4 references this very passage. Do you remember? When he is not being treated in a hospitable way, he says, ah, in those days of Elijah... The prophet could not go to any of the widows inside Israel, but rather to the outside he went. Surprise number one, Sidon. Surprise number two, a widow. At the bottom of the human heap, a woman who's experienced lost someone in poverty with no real options. Shocking that this is where God would send the prophet to a spiritually impoverished land, to a materially impoverished woman. 1 Kings 17, verse 10, So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar. A little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. A handful, a little a few, words that do not convey abundance, but poverty. 
perhaps reminding us of the widow's might, the boy's lunch, and the son of man who had not even a place to lay his head. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, but first, but first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This is hardly a five-course meal in a five-star restaurant. A little, a bit, just a few. Hand-to-mouth, day by day. The weather never clears in this story. Scripture testifies to this human expectation, this reality that we live in. A few examples of this day-to-day living. Exodus 16, speaking of manna, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Later in Matthew 6, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow. Psalm 118, this is the day the Lord has made. And finally, James 4, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, James says, but a mist, it will be gone. Just one day at a time. Jesus is fed by vulnerable birds. And then Elijah is fed by a single vulnerable bird. A woman from an impoverished spiritual land, impoverished materially herself. This is a story of living day to day, hand to mouth, a life of trial and stress even pain. It is not a story of wealth, of power, of abundance, of ease, of comfort. There is no miraculous aha. The curtain flies open and a banqueting table is presented. That is not this story. So perhaps a first lesson. If you and I are waiting for circumstances that are conducive to thankfulness, they will never come in this world. They will not come. If we are waiting for the curtain to be wide open, for all of our problems to go away, that moment will not come. And Thanksgiving will never come. It is interesting this week, we Americans have celebrated the holiday of Thanksgiving. We trace it back to a proclamation, do we not? President Abraham Lincoln Washington, D.C., October 3, 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, 
by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are so extraordinary in nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of God Almighty. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, and Lincoln goes on at length about the difficulty. And then he concludes, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe. The last Thursday of November next is a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. What a time for the birth of Thanksgiving Day in the heart of national conflict. Oh, my brothers and sisters, if we wait for a time conducive to thankfulness, that day will never come. It is in the middle of the civil wars of our lives. Do not wait for your marriage to be perfect to be thankful. Do not wait for your children to become perfect to be thankful. Do not wait for your church. Do not wait for your checkbook. Do not wait for your body to feel perfectly okay. Do not wait for any utopia for that day that you can be thankful, for that day will never come. Thankfulness emerges in the moment. This is the clear and first lesson from the widow of Zarephath. Day to day, hand to mouth, nothing fancy but thankfulness. Today. The second lesson I think that we might glean really comes from the punch in the story. Feed Elijah first. Feed Elijah first. Now, I thought for a bit over the last couple of weeks as I was reflecting on this passage what I ought to say about feed Elijah first. Moment of confession, the first idea that came to my mind was a little soliloquy right now was an order about how the pastor should in fact be fed first. <laughs> but I stepped away from my study in a moment of greater sense, decided that while I might wish to give that particular sermon that I probably would not. Because frankly, it bothers me, this part of the story. This woman proclaims, I don't even have enough to feed my boy and myself. Today we will die. And Elijah says, fine, fine, but go ahead and take care of me first. I don't know if that bothers you, but it troubles me. What is going on here? Elijah wishing to go first. Elijah, a name which means Yahweh is God. God is Yahweh. You see, what's really going on here is feeding Yahweh first. Feeding God first. Implicit in the story, day after day, meal upon meal, before taking her first bite, Acknowledgement of God. Now this seems familiar, doesn't it? A habitual act of acknowledging God just prior to eating. 
something we in this culture have named saying grace. Saying grace. In fact, here are some images of folks saying grace. But there's a seventh image. Two years ago, saying grace. That's the title of the artwork by Norman Rockwell. Sold at auction almost exactly two years today for $46 million. If you ever wondered what $46 million looks like, there it is. The 1951 masterpiece November, the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, Thanksgiving edition, saying grace. Look closely at the figures there portrayed, an older woman and a young boy daring to pray publicly. But if you look into the eyes, into the faces of those around, you see looks of derision, looks of puzzlement, looks of what actually are these people doing. I remind you, those who are Americans, 1951, and this is the tension about praying before a meal. What would the image look like today? Certainly, it would not be any better. A moment of commentary, interesting, isn't it, that we now live in an age where to pray before you eat is to be the arrogant one to dive into the meal full force as if you produced it all, is to be humble. I wonder. Saying grace. Nearly 3,000 years ago, Homer, write that no, Homer wrote that no one would, quote, dare to drink till he had made libation to Zeus. There's an Egyptian inscription from about 150 BCE offering up a prayer to the table god for pharaohs to say before eating meat. In Deuteronomy 8, we find the command that all who have finished eating should, quote, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And of course, throughout the Old Testament, we find the theme in places like Proverbs, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And then for the Christians, our central meal, the controlling narrative for our faith, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. At the very heart of the Christian story, the meal, and Jesus begins by giving thanks. Ron Lieber is a columnist with the New York Times. He muses that what this country really needs is a national grace-saying movement. A national grace-saying movement. He argues, after all, that the evidence is mounting, correlation, between levels of perceived gratitude and happiness with life levels. 
Gratitude levels and life satisfaction levels. Gratitude levels and, it's true, higher grades among students. Gratitude levels and the levels of envy and depression and inverse relationship. Gratitude levels and social integration go together. That is, when I am thankful, my ability to maintain friendships and community grows. In fact, there is an approach now in the helping community called gratitude therapy where a man or a woman walks into the office of a skilled therapist and their life is falling apart. One remedy, go home and make a list of everything you're thankful for. Go home and write a note to someone for whom you feel great gratitude. Start practicing thanksgiving and it will have real impact in your life. Lieber says, what would happen if we had a national grace-saying movement? But enough of that, what would happen if in this congregation and on this campus we had a grace-saying revolution? 365 days a year times three meals, 1,095 specific intentional offerings of prayer to God. Longer praying, slower praying, Communal pray. What if we did this one thing before every meal with great intentionality express our thanks to God? And I submit to you that this is more than just wishful thinking or a psychological trick. For the Christian prays with some meaningful foundation. A few weeks ago, I received a huge envelope full of thank you cards, hand-designed, colorful, by students of Rogers Avenue School. They were thanking their pastor. I have a few of them I want to show you that we took pictures of. Here's uh, one example. So here's the cover, right? Thank you, and then you open it up. Thank you, Pastor Brian, for. And that was it, actually. That was the card right there. <laughs> and so I started to think about the meaning behind this. Um, and, and I thought, well, maybe they couldn't think of anything that you ought to thank Pastor Brian for, but I, I couldn't be that. And, and then I thought, well, maybe I was supposed to fill in the list, and I grabbed a pen, and I thought, no, I know what it is. Words just cannot express. <laughs> yes. There were others. Two Pastor Alex. And then on the inside, I love church. Or this one. Two Pastor Alex Bryan. And on the inside, thank you for being my pastor. Your sermons touch my heart. Or this one, to Pastor Alex Bryan. I like what you do. <laughs> now that sort of just covers it, doesn't it? I mean, that gives me license. That's, I just like what you do. Whatever it is that you do, I like it. I'm thankful for church. I'm thankful 
for sermons. I'm thankful for whatever it is that you do up there. A Christian church, a Christian sermon, a Christian moment. What does it mean? Oh, but we must finish our story. 1 Kings 17 and verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into his house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Now I know the son is alive. What does it mean to be in a Christian church? The son is alive. What does it mean to hear a Christian sermon, the Son is alive? What does it mean, this thing that we do, the Son is alive? We can enjoy the Thanksgiving meal, for it sits on the Christmas table in the upper room of Easter. The Son is alive. And so we can express thanks to God with full heart, because there's a day coming. When the power of that enlivened Son shall bring to life every one of us who have claimed Jesus as our Savior. Oh, yes, there was a four-year-old boy who was asked to say grace before the Thanksgiving meal. The family bowed their heads, wondering what would be said next. The boy started to enumerate one after the next all of his friends, he then went on to family, father, mother, and grandma, and grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins, and siblings. And then the food with great specificity, the turkey and the stuffing, the vegetables, the salad, the cranberry sauce, the cakes and pies, even mentioning Cool Whip. But then a long silence. And finally, he asks his mother, if I thank God for the broccoli, will he know that I'm lying? It's hard to be thankful when life is bitter. But I submit to you, it is the very act of that boy saying grace that brings us grace. A prayer founded in the Son who is alive. Amen. Amen.